Hello again. I'm going to read the Bible again. And then Benny's going to come and preach to us. So John is in heaven. He's got this great vision. There's a whole bunch of seals. And here in chapter 8, the, the seventh seal is about to open. The page number's on the screen. You can find it and read. Um, Chapter 8, 9 and 10, Revelation. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer, and the prayers of all God's people, with the prayers of all God's people, on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, (coughs) excuse me, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded its trumpet And there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed." The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them who... So that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet. And I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and the sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of scorpions of the earth, they were, not, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will, die, they will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads was, they wore something like crowns of gold and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like, a, like a women's hair and their teeth like a lion's teeth. They had breastplates 
like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions, and in their tails they had the power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon, that is, destroyer. The first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of those mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke and, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head His face was like the sun. His legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll, which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said. And do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his hand, his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and and all that is in them, and the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from the heavens spoke to me once more, Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. That's the word of God. Please do keep your Bibles open. 
I'll have many of the words, though not all of them, on the screen today. And uh, as they do that, let me uh, lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you're the God who speaks and you speak to us for our good in your word, the scriptures. Father, please help us to concentrate, uh, to focus uh, and sit humbly under your word this morning that we might become more like our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you all please be silent? Thank you. Whilst the wrath of God is not at all a pleasant subject, you can't read much of the Bible without realising that it's a rather big theme. And something we're a little prone to forgetting, I find, is that we currently see the anger of God in our world. The way the Bible describes human reality at present is that it stands under the wrath of God. It is absolutely true that humanity is created by God. It is absolutely true that we are loved by God. And it is absolutely true we enjoy many wonderful gifts from God. But it's also absolutely true that humanity is currently under the righteous anger of God. And our natural trajectory is toward death, judgment and hell. The Apostle John taught that whoever believes in Jesus, the Son, has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, not because God's wrath will come upon them, but because God's wrath remains upon them. It is already there. The Apostle Paul, in his big uh, explanation of the Gospel in the uh, book of Romans, claims that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. And perhaps most strikingly, Jesus himself, in John chapter 3, says that whoever does not believe in him stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Wrath is all over the Bible and it's a present reality. We know that because it's both all over the Word of God and it's patently obvious in the the, the lives of, of humanity... Uh, that people are given over to depraved heads, depraved hearts, depraved hands, and that hell is a reality. We rightly work out that we need to be loving when we speak about the wrath of God and the reality of hell. But often it's also really easy to get embarrassed and awkward when it comes to this subject. Even though the Bible assumes that in general the human population is manifestly under the wrath of God, that hell is the obvious destination for all those who do not repent, it can easily become something we feel embarrassed to admit that we believe. That is why some Christians and even some Reformed evangelical leaders were quicker to distance themselves from Israel Folau's controversial statement rather than to affirm the truth of what he said. 
So how does God's word provide us with what we need to be unashamed and unembarrassed about the wrath of God, both present and future? How does God's word show us that we can be unembarrassed about something that's rather unpleasant? Well, that's something that God will teach us this morning in this lengthy section of the book of Revelation. And again this week, we are lifted up to see what's happening in our world, but from God's eternal heavenly perspective. And something we see in chapters 8 and 9 is that throughout world history, God's activity of judgment often also comes with salvation, and God's activity of salvation often comes amidst judgment. That's a very big picture thing that's true of God's activity over time. Our section begins at the very end with what happens at the final judgment, chapter 8 and verse 1, when he opened the seventh seal, the final one, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. If you remember from last week, God's plan for world history, past, present and future, the destiny of the world, was symbolically written on a scroll with seven seals. It was completely sealed. Jesus, who puts all God's plans into effect, and the one who established God's kingdom by dying to pay for our sin began opening the scroll, a seal at a time, one, two, three, four, five, six. And uh, by the end of the sixth seal, there was only one possible thing that must soon take place, namely the final judgment of the world. And when that comes, it will be so breathtaking and awe-filled that even though all the beings in heaven had been speaking, shouting, singing and praising God in eternity... There's a dead silence for half an hour, which probably would have felt like an eternity itself. I gave you all 30 seconds just before of silence to help us try and imagine how that half hour might possibly feel. Um, and when the final judgment kicks off, uh, it's, you know, it takes the sensor and the big rumbling, but there's an important point that we're not to miss about what happens as it kicks off, and that is that the prayers of Christians speed the coming of that final day. Verse 2, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel, who had a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand, so that the prayers are going up to God. Then, of course, the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it down to the earth, and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The final judgment kicks off. Now, of course, God, in his sovereignty, has set the exact day and time that his final judgment will come. No one knows the day or the hour other than God. But that does not mean that it's not true to say that the thing that tips his patience over the edge is the crying out, the prayers of his children that eventually get to the point where he will restrain his wrath no longer. Now, if you're like me, then you're super curious to hear more details about this final judgment. What's it going to look like when Jesus separates those who are forgiven from those who are condemned? But we're not given the satisfaction of any more detail at this point. I watched the State of Origin game one this week, so I commiserate with all the Blues supporters. And I noticed that as soon as there's a very significant moment in the game, 
we get a replay from a different camera angle. And then we get a replay from a different camera angle. And then we get a replay from a different camera angle. It's the same one event, and those with sharp eyes are worked out that there's the original, there's two different replays from different angles. One's so blurry because they go back and forward sometimes just to you know, sort of make sure we all get it. It's the one event, but the different angles bring out different nuances and different emphases. Last week, during the seven seals, we saw, for example, in 6 verse 12, that the sun and the moon were darkened. Here, during the seven trumpets, in verse, uh, chapter 8 verse 12, we see the sun and moon are darkened. Last week, in 7 verse 3, we saw the people of God were sealed so that they were safe from final judgment. Here, in 9 verse 4 again, we're told that God's people are sealed so that they're safe from the final judgment. Same event, same thing being played for us, different camera angle. That's what's happening, seven seals, seven trumpets. So the question is, what is being emphasised now? What are we seeing from this angle? Well, the first thing that's emphasised is that whilst the world is under the judgment of God, at many points we also see salvation amidst the judgment. I won't go through it all in detail, but the section from verse 7 through to 14, as is so often the case in Revelation, is a section where we're getting a smattering of Old Testament imagery that all combines to make a picture worth a thousand words. Uh, When we hear of the blood and the hail in verse 7 and of the sea turning into blood in verse 8 and of the darkness in verse 12, we are reminded of, well, what? Someone tell me. What does this remind us of? The Exodus. Yeah, plagues, Egypt, right. Uh, And those plagues kind of led up to the final big bang, didn't they, leading up to the Passover. It's similar here, only the proportions are much bigger. It's kind of like the, the plagues of Egypt, but on steroids. It's the cosmic version. Uh, when we hear of water turning bitter because something was thrown into it, interesting to know if someone gets this one. What does this remind you of? Moses? Yeah, well done. Uh, we're reminded of the time Israel are wandering through the desert. They couldn't drink the water because it was bitter until Moses threw a piece of wood in there. It was a symbolic Here, of course, it's the same, but in reverse, because not only is there salvation amidst judgment, there is judgment amidst salvation. When we hear of the great star falling from the sky, well, all of you know this one. It's obviously Isaiah 14. That's what you're all thinking. Um, The ruthless ruler of Babylon, who's referred to as the star that's fallen, who would enslave Israel, but who ultimately would be judged before, uh, sorry, so that Israel would be saved, similar to Pharaoh just now. Babylon, that's what we're thinking. Judgment amidst salvation, salvation amidst judgment. Generally speaking, that's a summary of God's activity throughout history. But then there's something more serious that gets emphasised for us. Put simply, as history plays out, God is actually being incredibly merciful. Instead of bringing judgment against sinful humanity in one fell swoop, which he could do, kind of like Noah, there's a level at which he's been bringing it on slowly, such that uh, we, we get a serious warning about how devastating and how final it will be in the end. Kind of like with the whole Pharaoh thing, right? He starts off one plague, I'll tell you, if you... If you keep stuffing it up, it's going to get worse and worse for you, but of course he keeps going. and It's a warning. 
And so we get this short interruption in verse 13 by an eagle. Now in the Bible, an eagle or a vulture associated with both judgment and salvation. Remember, God carried the Israelites out of Egypt on eagle's wings. But in Matthew 24, Jesus talks of vultures gathering as a symbol for the day of judgment. And basically, the eagle teaches that things are going to get much worse. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. Uh, When a dreadful storm is coming, the thing that warns you is actually part of the storm itself. Uh, We're warned by the dark clouds in the distance. But they are part of the storm. But the storm hasn't hit. You see the lightning start flashing and, and that's part of the storm, but the storm hasn't hit. You hear the thunder and the wind starts picking up and the rain starts, but still the storm hasn't hit, even though all these things are part of the storm. The rain droplets are sparse and the thunder is still some distance away. But there comes a point where if you haven't got to shelter, the last few elements of the storm will be much more severe and they'll come much faster. If you haven't repented at seeing all these clear signs of God's coming judgment, which are in themselves part of that judgment, then you'll probably be taken by surprise when the last three dreadful woes come what God is doing is judgment amidst judgment judgment from judgment giving us a part so that we can appreciate the whole but we're now getting much closer to the whole as the intensity is ramped up to the extreme so chapter 9 and verse 1 the fifth angel sounded his trumpet and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth like the ruler of Babylon that is the star probably represents someone or something that has the power to destroy whole nations The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and the sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. Like the four horsemen we saw last week who were given power to carry out limited destruction, so these fearsome creatures are going to be nasty. But their job is to serve as a severe warning for those who have not yet repented or put their faith in Christ. So verse 4, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. You remember from last week, Christians are sealed by God. We've heard the gospel and repented. But there's people who haven't heard the gospel and repented. They don't have the seal. That's the people they are to harm. Verse 5, they are not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. Now, that is a horrible thing, isn't it? In our world, seeking death is considered a psychiatric problem, rightly so. But all of a sudden, it becomes the rational thing to seek. The, the, the pain, the horror, the suffering is that terrible. Though even then, there's a limit. These creatures can only give the torture for five months. The idea is that having such a taste of the horrendousness of the judgment soon to come, that those who are not yet sealed would surely want to get sealed to put their faith in Jesus and repent before it's too late and the rest of the judgment comes, the storm finally hits. From verses 7 through 10, we get a terrifying description of these creatures. Then a reminder in verse 11 
that God is perfectly in control because the king over them is an angel. That could be one of God's angels, like he sent the angel of death in the Exodus. That was under God's control. Or it could be one of the devil's angels. But we already know that God is orchestrating the whole event, just like once upon a time the evil king of Babylon, when he attacked Jerusalem, he was doing it without realising that God was actually using him for God's own ends. It was part of God's plan. But that's only the first woe, the first major severe warning. The next one starts in verse 13, where God orders the release of, of what I call the hordes of hell. For ancient Israel, anything beyond the trans-Euphrates, it was called, was beyond civilization. So there were all sorts of myths about the savage barbarians that lived there. This is common in a lot of ancient cultures. Somewhere that's very far away is normally evil. Here, the four angels, that is the angels of the world, are figuratively letting go of those otherwise restrained hordes who will wreak havoc and destruction. The hellish barbarians are going to be let go. So verse 13... The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that's before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels are being kept ready for this very hour, day and month and year. Notice again the complete sovereign control of God. They've been kept for this. He knew it was going to happen. Were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000, I heard their number. It's a wonderful expression, I heard their number. And again, we get a fearsome description of these creatures in verses 7 to 19, uh, 17 to 19, which I won't go through because, frankly, the internet provides us with some rather intense artistic impressions of these things. Still don't know what to make of it. It's kind of cool. It's supposed to be terrifying. It's not quite there because there's a kind of comical element to it, but um, it will be terrifying uh, when it happens. Now, these, they, these creatures actually kill. But even then, there's a limitation. They kill a third of mankind, as you read in verse 18. But given all these extreme warnings of God's imminent judgment, given that the warnings have increased in severity like the plagues of Egypt, everyone ought to realise that it's better to repent than to be left unsealed when that storm finally hits. But that's why the key verses in this section are so striking and so truly horrifying, more horrifying even than the hordes of hell that we've been hearing about. Verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the works of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, idols that cannot see, hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. This is the horrifying picture in Revelation chapters 8 and 9, that despite the severity of such warning, the sinful heart is so unbelievably, profoundly stubborn and resistant and frankly filled with hatred towards God that it will not repent. Sometimes you might wonder, how could a just God 
send people to hell for all eternity. I mean, imagine you're as bad as you can be for 80 years of your life. Well, maybe you should have 80 years of torment in hell. Uh, but given that despite every warning, sinners in their stubborn pride and rebelliousness refuse to repent, what makes you think that they would suddenly become repentant when they're in their eternal destination? No one in hell actually wants to have anything to do with God. It's eternal because so is the, the character of, of their sin. So with all that, just like with the seven seals from last week, the only thing we should expect to happen next is that the final trumpet's going to be blown. The third woe is going to happen. The last of the third woes should, should be it. History should be wrapped up with the sealed Christians in heaven and the unrepentant sinners in hell. And that's exactly what we see happen right away. Only it's not. Just like last week, just like with the seals, there's a delay when there shouldn't be. There's something that's illogical that doesn't make sense. Instead of hearing the final trumpet, we're strangely introduced to Jesus by way of an angel. Now, in the Old Testament... You can't read much of the Old Testament without coming across the angel of the Lord, an angel of the Lord. There's probably lots. Uh, the angel of the Lord typically speaks as God and acts as God. Great example of it is Judges uh, chapter 13, when the parents of Samson, Manoah and his wife, see the angel of the Lord and then they realise they've seen God, right? Judges 13, if you're interested. The idea was that however you approach the angel of the Lord... That was exactly the same way as you would approach God and that the, the angel of the Lord would represent uh, God and, and do what God says. So here we see a, the beginning of chapter 10 is a mighty angel and yet this angel clearly fits the description of Jesus. It's the angel of the Lord and Jesus is the Lord. Uh, chapter 10 and verse 1, I'll make some observations on the way. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. Gosh, that sounds like what we saw in chapter 1, doesn't it? His face was like the sun. Well, that's exactly what his face was like in chapter 1. And his legs were like fiery pillars, just like they were burnished bronze. He was holding a little scroll. There's only one person I can think of so far that's been able to hold a scroll other than God, and that's Jesus, who is God. Holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land because he rules over the sea and the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. What lion might that be? Lion of Judah. That's Jesus. And yet it's the angel. It's the angel of the Lord. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. Well, there's the voice of God, if ever I've seen it, heard it. But then something that strikes us as a little bit strange happens. Verse 4, and when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, and the earth and all that's in it, and the sea. That's... So he's really, really serious about what he's about to say. And said, there will be no more delay. Of course there won't. 
there's only one more trumpet to go and humanity's, those people are being sealed already. They're trusting Jesus. Everyone else is stubborn and rebellious. So bring, bring on the judgment. Now, again, to make sense of this little thing about the writing, we need our Old Testament glasses on. Once upon a time, if you remember, the prophet Habakkuk, little book, three chapters you can read Habakkuk this week, the prophet Habakkuk was informed that the time was near when the Babylonian army would conquer Jerusalem and take Judah captive. He was incensed that God would allow such an evil people to be used for his purposes of judgment. So God assures Habakkuk that he would, in the end, punish the Babylonians for their evil. In fact, he'd punish all sinners with a final and a perfect judgment. So he told Habakkuk to write down a message that awaited an appointed time in the future to come to pass. Write down the revelation, he says. Make it plain on tablets so that a herald, or that is a messenger, may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Don't linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. He then assured Habakkuk that those who live by faith in God will be safe. Being an Israelite or being a Babylonian wouldn't make you safe. Having trust in God, that's what faith is, would be the measure of someone who is righteous. But the final judgment would surely come and would not delay. So with that bit of background, we come back to Revelation 10 and we see that Jesus himself, who speaks the word of God, is saying that the time has now come. There is no need for John to write anything down. He does what anyone would do because he knows his Old Testament, he's a prophet. Oh, I better write down. No, no, no. No need for that, mate. It's here. No more time for the message to go. No herald to run with it. If the angel of the Lord, the angel of Jesus himself, has stated that there will be no more delay, then of course the final judgment should commence immediately. Theologically and logically, that must be the case. But, and we should feel extremely uncomfortable about this, even the angel of the Lord, and I want to emphasise symbolically and figuratively, is inaccurate. Verse 7. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. And of course, you all immediately thought of what Paul writes in the the letter to the Ephesians, how the mystery of God, or the secret of God, is that salvation is not just for the people of Israel. It can go all the way to the ends of the earth. The good news about Jesus, the the great secret that anyone and everyone can come to to, to a saving relationship with God through Jesus is to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. The same voice that has been speaking to John then gives him a command to go and evangelise whilst this illogical delay is taking place. Verse, oh, I didn't put it in there. Uh, Verse 8, I'll read verse 8 for you. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the scene on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It'll turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. Take this thing, and it's my words, and you've got to have it in you. Why have you got to do that? Well, as you read that, you're all thinking of what God told uh, uh, Ezekiel 
to eat a scroll which tasted as sweet as honey in his mouth. Have you all read Ezekiel, chapters 1 to 11 at least, like I told you? Hurry up, Ezekiel 1 to 11. Uh, Even though he would preach to a stubborn and rebellious people, there was a chance in Ezekiel's day that God would give them new life. Here, Johnny's being told to preach, but it's also going to be sour in his stomach because he'll discover that there will be those who don't repent and it will be too late for them once that final judgment hits. Christians know the pain of the sour stomach of the friends, the family, the loved ones who remain in their rebellion against God, despite our best efforts. And so finally, Jesus gives the Great Commission once again. Verse 10, I think I stuffed the slide, so I'll read it for you. Verse 10, I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted sweet as honey in my mouth, and when I'd eaten it, it turned my stomach sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Translation, keep spreading the gospel. The judgment of God has already begun. Therefore, final judgment is as sure as day. In fact, there's no logical reason that God shouldn't bring the final judgment upon the world right now. But in his illogical mercy, he's deliberately holding off, just like those angels holding back the wind last week, so that his servants can go and prophesy which, of course, in this context is to preach the gospel, so that more people from all nations can be spared the hell that they and that we deserve. To put it simply, God's judgment has already begun, so we need to make the most of the mercy time that we have. When you realise that the time is extremely short and even illogical, is the best way I can express it, suddenly the truth about the wrath of God and the coming judgment seems something that you need not be embarrassed by, but desperate for people to know. You will throw the caution into the wind because the time is short. At any point, God could just let go, and he'd be right to let go of the restraint He's already showed the world that that final judgment is a definite thing and it should take place. And where did he show it most of all? Of course, it's in the place where you see the ultimate judgment and the ultimate salvation of God, namely in the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, I've said this many times before, but I'll never cease to say it. You could be new or visiting or not yet a Christian. Uh, When Jesus died on the cross, that was the judgment of God that you and I deserve that still awaits unrepentant sinners being poured out upon Jesus. Jesus took it so that you might not have to. Those who have trust or faith in him, those who recognise Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, are people for whom God considers that final judgment to have been passed on them already. That the wrath of God has been taken by Jesus rather than those who have their faith in him. Your choice is to stand on your own two feet and face God Uh, in your rebelliousness and your sinfulness, or to stand on Jesus. He's taken all the punishment for your sin and through your, on account of your your trust in him, God has no final judgment for you. You to To use the words of Revelation, you will not be hurt by the second death. For those of us who are in Christ, the implication is actually fairly straightforward then. 
why does God leave me here? Well, why the same reason he, he, he says to John, you've got to do the same thing again that you've already been doing, so that I can warn and plead. And it's helpful to think in terms of warning and pleading because it, um, it makes, I guess, the blow or the offence of judgment, speaking about judgment and sin, rightly bearable because when people recognise that you're pleading with them to avoid it, um, then that's, that's the way it needs to be spoken. Uh, the trajectory that people who are not in Christ are on is a trajectory to an eternity in hell, and God has warned you very, very clearly of that. And it's your stubborn refusal to acknowledge or listen to God or to heed the warning that means you'll go there. So therefore, I plead very desperately with you that you will not be like these people who in their stubbornness refuse to repent. You'll say, I know deep down that God is actually who he says he is. I know deep down that in my heart of hearts I've, I've been ignorant of God, I've lived my own life my own way without him. And I know deep down that Jesus died to pay for my sin, that Jesus rose to show he actually is the Lord of my life. So I plead with you to turn and put your faith in him. That's what I do. That's what we do. Don't be ashamed to warn and to plead. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this stark, though merciful and loving warning of the judgment that now is and the judgment that therefore is to come without delay. Father, please help us to make the most of the short time that we have to warn people fearlessly of the truth of your wrath, of the truth of hell, and to plead with people earnestly uh, that they turn and put their faith in the Saviour, who on account of your incredible love and mercy took the hell that we deserve. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.